So Eddie Blackman is, I mean, I'm smiling because every time I'm around him, I'm always laughing. So first things first, Eddie Blackman is good energy. He's fun to be around. He's hilarious. He's also currently the VP of A&R at AWOL, which is an independent record label. Eddie has been a part of incredible music like All of Me by John Legend off of uh, Love in the Future. From Eddie's A&R experience to his management experience to his publishing experience to his life experience, I am positive that you're going to catch some gems from Eddie Blackman. Uh, let me get my intro music ready. Hold on. Let me, uh, uh, I mean, my intro, my intro drop. Hold on. Maybach music. I am from Chicago Heights, Illinois, which is about 20 minutes south of the south side of Chicago. When I was growing up, I actually wanted to be a elementary school teacher. I had summer jobs uh, as a camp counselor. I just loved working with kids, and I just thought I was going to grow up and be a uh, be elementary school teacher. Clearly, that didn't work out. Growing up, I listened to a lot of different types of music. I actually, you know, at that time, growing up in the '90s in Chicago, it was a blend of, you know, East Coast, West Coast, um, Atlanta. Obviously, that's when the Atlanta scene was was with LaFace was really starting to move. Um, and even in Chicago, you had the do or dies, the twisters. Um, and so I was always immersed in various types of music. I also um, used to DJ at a roller rink growing up. And so when I was like 13 and 14, I used to get a stipend from the from the owner of the roller rink to go out and buy. Well, at that time, it was really the introduction of CDs were coming in. So I used to go to this little rinky dink record store and buy all of the CDs I possibly could. So I had everything from Tupac to PM Dawn to Outkast to George Michael. So I had a little bit of everything. That was not my first job. Actually, my first job was cutting grass. I actually, one summer, I had four jobs. Um, during the day, I cut grass with my next door neighbor. Uh, he had his own you know, small um, lawn care service. So I cut grass uh, during the day. In the evening, I worked at a telemarketing company. Um, and then during the on the weekends is when I worked at the roller rink Saturday and Saturday and Sunday. And then Saturday and Sunday evenings, I used to work at Chuck E. Cheese. I've been getting that guap. Uh, I was like 16, 17. This was like my junior and senior year of, of high school. So summer, I needed that. I had, you know, I, got, I had a car. My mom gave me her 85 uh, Honda Accord. You know, I had to put gas in it. You know, I was you know, going on a date. So I had to have some, you know, I had to take them to Red Lobster, get them Cheddar Bay biscuits popping. My senior year of high school, I did a summer internship here in New York. And that was the year that the Bad Boys 2 movie came out and Puff did the soundtrack. And I went to, uh, I don't even think I got an official invite. I think the person that I was working for, interning for at that time, uh, the Prasad brothers, Michael and Erwin Prasad, they used to have their own, um, uh, marketing company. And I still actually have the invites somewhere packed away, but uh, I, I went to this party. It was at the supper club 
And, you know, this was my first industry party and it was, you know, Puff and, you know, all these celebrities. I remember um, AJ and Free, because that's obviously when, when 106 and Park was popping. Uh, Gabrielle Union was there. It was open bar Hennessy. This was this was before uh, Ciroc and De Leon and, and, and Doucet. This is when Hennessy was rocking. So open bar um, uh, Hennessy. I got faded as fuck. Uh, I was staying in Brooklyn at that time. So it had to be like 4 a.m. Hopped on the A train. Cause again, I'm intern. I got no real bread like that. So <clears throat> hopped on the A train. I fell asleep. My, my stop was the Nostrand Avenue stop. I ended up in Howard beach, which is JFK airport. So I had to get back on the train, go back the opposite way. And that's when I made the decision like, yo, I want to be in the music business. So that's how it all started. On the A-Train, falling asleep on the A-Train. I was like, yo, I can get used to this, getting faded and falling asleep on the A-Train. Well, there wasn't any one specific person that influenced me. I, you know, again, that was the the moment at that party where I, the thought of being in the music business was what moved me to it. Like, oh man, this is what the music business is like. You know, now it's like, man, I don't ever want to go to another party again. I've gone to so many parties. But at that particular moment, you know, when you're, you're coming from another state, you know, coming to New York, the big city, you know, having that part, you know, being a part of that environment, seeing all these celebrities and and all that. It was just like, man, I want to do it. And then ended up packing up my stuff and, and moving to New York shortly afterwards. My first job in the music business was an actual music internship. So after the that summer, I came back. Well, let me take a step back. So while I was in New York during that summer, I met a young lady named Ampora, um, who at the time was the assistant for Ron Gilliard, who was the president of Black Music at Interscope. And somehow we, you know, struck up a conversation and she was like, yo, you know, if you ever want to do an internship, you know, let me know. I was like, yeah, of course. And so she had an opening for that fall packed up my stuff and, and, and moved here. So that was my first official internship. Uh, I was there at Interscope for about nine months. Um, that's when I, and randomly, I don't know why I'm mentioning this, but that's when I first met Stephen Victor. He was actually working in it as a publicist. Um, and so that's her, how he and I became friends. So that was the, the first person I really kind of bonded with in the music business. And then from there, I went to intern in Sony. At that time, it was Sony Urban with um, a young lady named Shakia Avant, who was the assistant to Lisa Ellis, who at that time was the general manager of Sony Urban. Um, and then from there, my first official job was working at Good Music when Kanye had got his first label deal with Sony and um, had this young artist that they just put an album out by the name of John Legend. Don't know if any of you've heard of him, but um, yes, yeah, so that was my first official uh, official job. Oh, my mom d definitely hated the fact that I pursued a career in the music business because, you know, as as parents, you always want better for your kids. And in their minds, it's go to school, get an education, which obviously I did. Um, and then it was, you know, go get a job, get married, get a house, such and so forth. So after I finished college and graduated from college with a degree in communications and sociology and moved to New York, I was 
interning for free. And so I had to obviously make some income. So I bartended and my mom didn't think that's what someone who just graduated from college, who she paid for, for college, I should say, uh, she didn't think that was the right thing. And so, yeah, she didn't definitely did not get it now. Oh, she loves the fact that I'm in the music business. (laughs) So, you know, all of the concert tickets and parties that I've taken her to. So yeah, she loves the fact that I've made that choice. The top two projects that I've worked on, um, I would say one was definitely John Legend's Love in the Future album, which has this song on it. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called All of Me. I would, you know, a a mild hit record. Um, I don't know, it's been like 2 billion streamed or something like that. Um, But yeah, that was my first excuse me, that was one of the best projects that I've worked on. Um, You know, I got to do a lot of traveling. That was like a three-year process. Um, Got to do a lot of traveling, spend a lot of time in Hawaii. This is when um, he reconnected, he being John reconnected with Kanye. And when Kanye was on his Hawaii vibe doing 808s and Heartbreaks. And so spent about two or three weeks in Hawaii working on his album, you know, but uh, you know, you're in Hawaii. So, you know, we did a lot of water sports, a lot of, um, you know, just hanging out in Hawaii, which was, you know, cool. And I didn't pay for it. <laughs> so uh, that was definitely one of the best projects that I worked on. I'm trying to think another project. I would say Stacey Barth's album or Becoming album was definitely an experience. I think really more so because of the type of music that she was putting out, you know, Stacy is definitely ahead of her time. And that music is just timeless. And it was just a great time working on it with her. Um, so yeah, I would say those two, I would say those two projects. At that time, I was also um, co-managing uh, DJ Camper. And so I put DJ and um, Stacy together and they came up with the song called Flawed Beautiful Creatures, which ended up being the intro to I think the second season of being Mary Jane. Managing my time, especially in quarantine, has been interesting because, you know, working in the city, living in New Jersey and and traveling into the city, that's an hour each way. So that's two hours of my day that had been unproductive because, again, you're on a train, you're on a ferry, you're on a a taxi or what have you. So working from home, it definitely made me more productive and actually having to prioritize because, and I was reading some like study one time that in an eight hour workday, if you're going into an office, you're only actually really productive for about five of those hours. When you count travel, when you count, you know, taking a lunch break, taking breaks, intermingling, there's like water cooler talk, going to the bathroom. So you're not that productive. And I've actually found myself a lot more productive, but, but because there's no break in terms of you know, having to get up, get dressed, go out into the world, go to, to go to the office, you have to set limits on yourself. So it's like, all right, at 10 a.m., I'm going to start my day. I'm going to come downstairs. I'm going to get, you know, get to work. And at, you know, eight o'clock, I'm going to stop. They're like, you have to put those parameters in place or you'll just be in your office and you'll look up and it'll be midnight. And like, how the hell did I end up here? You know, so between the hours of 10 a.m. and 8 p.m., 
it's just really figuring out, you know, what's the priorities for that day. You know, do in my current role as an A&R at AWOL, I, you know, I'm listening to music, I'm taking phones, I'm negotiating deals, I'm doing so much, obviously on Zooms and, and having having those calls. So every day is different. There's definitely not one day that is the same, um, which is obviously enjoyable because you don't fall into the monotony of doing the same thing and getting bored. But at the same time, it's very, you have to figure out how to organize. So I live off of a calendar, off my iCal and emails and my notes, um, the note app on on the computer. That's the three things that keep me organized through the day. What does an A&R do? Depends on who you ask. Um, you know, for me, you know, obviously being in the business now for about 15, 16 years, there's been a, a major shift in what A&R really means. You know, I was fortunate enough to be around A&Rs like um, uh, Chad Elliott's and the KPs and, uh, you know, Craig Kalman and Mark Pitts and, you know, who really, really do a and I remember sitting in Craig, Craig Kalman's office one time, we were uh, listening to an Estelle record. And in the middle of the song, he like stopped it. And he was like, did you hear that? And everybody was like, hear what? He said, that noise that when he identified whatever noise it was, he was like, gotta take that out. It messes up the flow of the, the song. And it's like, yo, how did you even hear that? <laughs> so, you know, um, and, but again, over the last, you know, 15 years it's definitely changed. Obviously it's a more analytically and researched, um, way of doing things, which I think you need, you know, still a, a combination of both. You have obviously the, the young kids that are, you know, looking at every chart and every TikTok and every this and that. And then you still have people who are like, yo, I just love the music. Let's figure out how to do it. So, you know, my job is, is really a combination of both now. And, you know, it's funny because even when I was like, again, going back to the example of, you know, putting Stacy and Camper in together, I was just doing it because they were my clients, right? <laughs> Not even thinking about, man, this is a, this is A&R. But, you know, that's how records come together. So, you know, I think the baseline is anytime you're putting a record together or connecting the dots, I think that's an A&R. And like, listen, there's no, there's, you don't go to school to be an A&R, right? You just, people just like wake up and like, oh man, I'm, I'm the head of A&R. Head of A&R for what? My company. How many employees do you have? None. <laughs> it's like, all right, bro, you want to be head of A&R? It's all good. Um, but yeah, it's, um it's interesting. You know, I've been at my current company, AWOL, as the, you know, quote unquote, vice president of A&R, but I do so many different things because I've been in management, because I've been in marketing, because I've done publishing. So a lot of my time, you know, when I do a deal with the artist is really a combination of all of those things versus the traditional version of like, let's go in the studio and let's, you know, figure out your records because they're already bringing the records to us. It's just figuring out how to maximize it. What I've learned is that every client needs something different. So when I was managing Stacy, uh, she needed, uh, you know, something different than when I was managing Ro, Ro James, um, from when I was managing, um, DJ camper, you know, I was fortunate enough to work or co-manage, excuse me. I was fortunate enough to have great co-managers, um, Natalie with, Camper and Keith um, White with Roe. So, 
you know, what I also learned is that guys don't need as much attention as ladies do. And so I was solely managing Stacy. And so I had to dedicate a lot of my time and energy to, um, to her and to that. But I mean, we had a completely different relationship than I did with, with Roe. And so, you know, you really have to be, as a manager, you really have to be what your artist or your client needs you to be for them. Um, and that's, you know, it's just a skill set that you kind of learn. Again, you don't go to manager school. It's just, you know, you wake up and, and a lot of a lot of managers don't understand you actually need to understand the business. I think a lot of managers just think that, oh, I'm just kind of along for the ride. I'm just here. You know, you have the managers that are the managers that, you know, grew up with the artist or a family member of the artist. Um, then you have managers who, you know, have been doing this 20 or 25 years and been very successful, you know, of doing it and managing superstars. So it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting job. I do think creatives need managers um, because they should always focus on the creative part because there are so many times where things will fall through the cracks and like, again, there's no manual of being a manager, right? And so a creative can't, I shouldn't say they can't, but it's very hard to manage your creative process and then manage your business, especially when you become a megastar, right? You know, trying to think, uh, you know, Beyonce may be, you know, a great example of someone who doesn't necessarily have a manager, but she has, and even if she doesn't have a manager, she has an entire empire, an entire team that's handling various parts of her business. Um, you know, who's managing Taylor Swift? I don't know that anybody manages Taylor Swift, but I'm sure she has enough people around her to help her with the business. So if you don't have a, a manager as a creative, you should definitely look into, you know, having one or at least having a team that can help handle the business for you. Uh, placing a song, I think now is, is very easy because there are more artists. And I use that term <laughs> very loosely um, available and it's easier to contact people, you know, as a, as an A&R, if I want to get in touch with somebody, the first thing I do is, go to their Instagram and hit them in the DM or find out, like make a connection on, you know, who's managing them or who's a producer. Like probably a few weeks ago, this artist came across my radar and I went to his, um, I went to his Instagram page and saw he was following an attorney. And then I went to her page and then saw that she was following him. And I was like, I kid her like, Hey, are you representing this artist? And she was like, yeah, I am I'm like, Oh, great. Let's, talk about a deal and it was e that easy so um yeah I, I think it's literally that easy so i tell you know writers and producers if there's someone that you want to work with it, like listen everybody would love to work with rihanna everybody would like to work with this artist or that artist but who's the next rihanna who's the next beyonce find them you know and and, and this is the real game that i've told producers especially producers i say everyone is so caught up on the I've got to get paid to their chasing the placement game. Give your, give your shit away for free. Why not? Start, if you're a new producer trying to get in the game, hit somebody, yo, I got free beats, here you go. Free beats, here you go. Because, it become, because then it becomes about market share. And it only takes one. And in this, in this ecosystem, in this world that we're living in right now, you never know. You never know when something's going to take off on TikTok or there's going to be some stupid ass challenge that that happens. So it could be yours. It's like playing a lottery, but you trying to, 
you know, play, play the, let me figure out how to get this song to this major artist. It's like, listen, that shit is literally like one in a trillion. Get the low hanging fruit first, figure out how to build your catalog, build your name and your brand. And then people are going to start coming to you. Splits. That's pretty easy. All you need is some type of paper trail saying that this is it. It doesn't need to be a, oh, here's a formal document that says this is what we need. You get on an email, you get on a text chain. Uh, I'm Eddie Blackman. I contributed 25% of this. You're Tiffany. You can you contributed 25%. Hitboy contributed 50%. And all you got to say is cool. Yep. Thumbs up. All good. <laughs> Use some type of emoji. And now you have documents saying that this is what the splits are. It's that that simple. You know, obviously it's fresh on everybody's mind. And especially if there's a lot of people that have contributed to the record, you might as well get it out the way. Even if you don't think the record is going to go somewhere immediately, you should definitely get it out of the way. And again, I mean, listen, of, of course, the best way is some type of, you know, formal piece of paper. But, you know, we live in a world now where there's obviously other ways to to do that that I've already laid out. But yes, I do think that as a writer or producer, you definitely need to address the splits as soon as possible after making the record. It's interesting um, about when you should think about doing a publishing deal because it's all about uh, obviously, there's various types of publishing deals, right? There's obviously still co-pub deals, and there's obviously admin deals, which have become more popular. You know, working at Cobalt, that's all we do is on the publishing side is do admin deals. But again, it, it goes back to an earlier point that I made about knowing the business. And the longer that you wait as a um, artist or a producer or writer to collect on your publishing, the uh, more and more likely that that money goes away. Because at some point it's going to go into that little black box and it's going to be hard to unlock it and get it back. And so now you have various companies that you can uh, go to, like the song trusts of the world to, you know, if you have one song out, register it, you know, with them, basically get an admin, easy admin deal and collect your, 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 um, your publishing. You don't need to do a, you know, you don't need to go to Warner Chapel and talk to Ryan and get a you know a million dollar deal at that point. But, you know, at some point when you, you feel like the time is right to go out and get a publishing deal, when you have a certain, you know, a certain, um, catalog, you have certain leverage then yeah, go out and figure out how to do the best deal for yourself. But from day one, that a song comes out, you need to be collecting on it somehow, some way. So Sony acquired or is in the process of acquiring AWOL. So Cobalt is still standing as its own freestanding publishing company. But, you know, I had a lot of calls last week or two weeks ago, however long it, the, when the news came out about that from, you know, my artists, their managers, attorneys, et cetera. Like, you know, what does this mean? You know, am I still independent? Like, do I, am I going to get upstream to this label or that label? I think that as an independent artist, the, People are questioning what independent means. What does being an independent artist, like, how does that, what's the qualifier of that? It's very simple. It comes down to one, one question. Do you still own your art? Do you still own your masters, the rights to your art, the rights to your masters? If that answer is yes, then you're an independent artist. It doesn't matter where your distribution situation is through, whether it's AWOL, Empire, Orchard, TuneCore, STEM, DistroKid, anything else. I mean, if you own it, you're independent. That's really the bottom line. And as it relates to this particular acquisition, that will still be the case that, you know, we'll st- we're still, listen, as a, as AWOL, we were funded by a company, 
now we're just funded by a different company. I mean, it's not, it's no different. It's just happens to be a major player. I mean, listen, Google was, is one of, was one of our investors. <laughs> now it's Sony. It's money at the end of the day, but yeah, you'll still be independent artist, business as usual. There won't be any major changes. You know, no one's getting let go. There's not any, uh, you know, we're not absorbing into the orchard. We're just be utilizing their backend tech platform because right now we're using Cobalt and obviously we can't do that anymore. So it's still going to be business as usual. Every artist should look at their situation and see what they need, right? You know, ev- everyone's situation is is different. Listen, if you can remain, I wouldn't even say remain independent. I guess I would. If by definition, if you own your own masters and you're, you're, you're independent, but yeah, as long as you can control your art and the destiny, your destiny, I think you should remain independent as, as long as possible. Obviously there's other factors that go into that, right? You know, somebody comes and like, yo, I'm gonna give you a million dollars. Oh, I might have to take that, but you know, make sure that you're educated on what that deal that you're signing is because you should never, you know, five years later be complaining about, man, I'm in this, this fucked up deal. Well, why did you sign it? <laughs> you know, it's not like someone forced you to do that. So again, I think that you should look at all of your options and make the best decision for yourself at whatever point you think that is. Yeah, no, I don't think that I've ever quit anything. Um, I've definitely been fired one time, but yeah, I definitely have not ever quit. You know, when you love doing something, you know, you don't quit at doing it. So um, and if you do, if you do leave, it's not by your own volition. So, but yeah, I've never, I've never quit anything in the music business. The best piece of life advice that I've received. Um, I don't know if this is the best advice, but it's just coming off the top of my head because I told somebody yesterday. So when you're making a decision on something, you should obviously speak to the people who, you know, if, if you are, let's just use an artist or a producer, speak to your manager, speak to your, um, speak to your, uh, you know, attorney, obviously who your advisors are, but also speak to someone who does not gain anything or lose anything by that decision that you have to make. Um, it could be uh, a best friend. It could be, you know, a third cousin removed. Because, listen, if I'm your manager, if I'm managing Tiffany, and Tiffany is asking me if she should sign this $100,000 publishing deal, I have something to gain from it if she does, right? So I may or may not give you the best advice. But if you speak to your cousin third removed and ask them their opinion, they may give you something. They're going to probably give you a very honest opinion because they have nothing to gain or lose by that decision that you have to make. So I think that's, again, that's the, the, the advice that comes off the top of my head right now. When you're young, and especially when you're in the music business, I don't think you appreciate that moment that you're in or just in generally in life when you're young you don't appreciate that moment because you don't know how it is to be 40 you can't say you could say oh when I get 40 I want to do this but when you're 40 you obviously have had the experience of being 20 and so you can look at yourself but I think that you know I would have told myself to enjoy the experience 
don't just and, and be more smart about the decisions that you make. You know, if if I would have known, listen, if if I would have saved the money that I should have saved during that time that I was making the money at 20 that I was, man, I'd be a lot richer than I am now. Um, not to say that I'm rich, but you get the point that I'm making. Uh, you know, I, I look at, and especially now in, in this environment where, I mean, listen, let's take these shoes, for example, right? Do I really need all these shoes? Absolutely not. Especially not in the last year because I haven't gone anywhere. Do I really need, you know, this Louis Vuitton belt or this Gucci shirt? No. Why did I spend $1,000 on these Louis Vuitton shoes? For what? That's a thousand dollars that I could have had in my pocket or in my bank, or I could have put on my mortgage, or I could have put on, you know, something else, donated it to a church. Like I did watch the uh, what's it called, social experiment. I thought that was very interesting. The, the major quote that that I took away from that was there are only two industries that call their consumers users uh drugs and like like social media and that said a lot to me 